Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening. Uh, Typically, I have a guest each and every Monday, but my guest was unable to join me, so I will be flying solo. And my dear friends, I thought it would be good to pull back and uh, take stock into what is just not essential to our faith, but what is the quintessential to our faith. You've heard me say before in the past that our most fundamental role as Christians and as Catholics is to bear witness to truth. Okay, well, what is the greatest truth? Pilate asks this question to our Lord, and he shows us what truth is. Truth is love. So, as Paul reminds us, the greatest of all virtue is love. So, we are going to hone in on what love is all about. This will have us rekindling some past subject matter, but we are going to be doing more than just hitting the refresh button this evening. We are going to continue to snorkel, go deeper into what love is all about, and we will do so within the context of Lent. This may or may not have us looking at materialism. But with that, uh, if you do have any questions, comments, thoughts, observations, to just not what I talk about here tonight, this evening, my friends, but any question you may have about the Christian and Catholic faith, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com. I welcome any and all questions. And you can also go to my website, joholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link there, send your question on its way, and I will gladly respond to you. Okay, so... Lent, and this great topic of love. Now, I have touched upon uh, the themes of Lent over a course of maybe two evenings and three or four minute sound bites. What lies at the heart of Lent? Well, it's about removing one thing to be available to another thing. In this case, to detach ourselves from material things so as to be available uh, to God. That is what lies at the heart of it. Now, can we do this on our own? No. We need God. We need God's love. I heard some great homilies uh, this past weekend on God's love and Lent, and yeah, rightfully so, because if we're going to do this right, if we're going to do Lent well, then we have to first understand God's love, which, oh, by the way, is always forgiving, okay? If you have already failed in your Lenten sacrifice on that corporal work of mercy you promised God you were going to do, repent, seek forgiveness, and don't just give up on Lent, huh? No. Re-engage, right? This is what it's about. God does not expect perfection, but He does expect we try. My dear friends, one thing we will certainly talk about this evening is that human love is not perfect. But again, what God desires is that we get up a second time. And this ultimately is what defines a saint. Not that he or she is perfect, but that he or she is willing to admit this mistake. And when the mistake is made, to get up, rise up in God's grace and re-engage. Now, 
On my way over here, as I was reflecting into God's love, I was made to reflect into that one word, vanity. That word that for so many of us, my friends, usually has us thinking about some excessive love of one's appearance. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, it has a different meaning. It is a word in the Latin vanus, which literally means uh, emptiness or nothing. So when we say that phrase, oh, vanity of vanities, it can be better translated as something like a complete waste of time. If you were to go into the book of Ecclesiastes, right, <laughs> the author there is cynical about life. When he is speaking in this tone of, oh, vanity of vanities, he's looking back on the futility of his life, and he is saying, I wasted so much time. He is not necessarily looking back on his life and saying to himself, well, I was too concerned about appearances. Yes, maybe, but it's more about this idea of wasting time. Just think of it. How many hours do you spend watching television on Facebook, playing a video game? I don't know how many hours it is, but it's probably too many hours. Or how many hours do you spend intemperately doing things that ultimately do not give glory to God. And I'm raising my hand here in this radio studio. I have my own attachments for sure. We are all challenged. But this is what the author of Ecclesiastes is about. He's challenging us. He is asking all of us to look back on who we are, what we've been, and say, man, we have really wasted time here and there. And what, of course, does the author of Ecclesiastes close with? that the only worthwhile thing about life is knowledge of God, knowledge of His love, knowledge of living for the glory of God and living for His love. Again, we were created from love for love, and apart from this love, we lose our sense of direction. If, if birds are most happy and free when they are flying, and fish most happy and free when they are swimming, then my dear friends, we are most happy and free when we are loving because we were created in the image and likeness of God. And as such, when we love as God has loved, then we will be most free, most happy because this is what we were created for, right? So this challenge before us is about a question. Why do you do what you do? What is your motus operandi? What operates your motives? Why do you wake up in the morning? Is it about self or is it about other? This is the great tension before us all, is it not? And so we have the season of Lent as a gift to us in so many ways, because it has us looking at self in a new way. Okay, Lord, what are you calling me to give up? What are you calling me to do so I can be more disposed? so I can see what you want me to see. And so once again, we lean into his goodness, we lean into his grace, we lean into his love, his love. Again, as Paul reminds us, the greatest thing in the whole world is love. And don't be mistaken here, my friends, love is not to be relegated to the arbitrary, to what we think it is, something that is so subjective that it no longer has any definitive shape and form. No, 
The genius of Christianity and Catholicism is the incarnation and the Paschal mystery, because in the incarnation and Paschal mystery, from the crib to the cross, we have the fullness of love, the full revelation of love. And by revelation, we mean unveiling, the unveiling of something that is true and definitive. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in so saying, he is establishing absolute love. Now, if you have been listening to some of our Thursday programming, Theology of the Body, you know some things about love, right? Eros and agape. Eros is that erotic human physical love. Agape is that divine, sacrificial, cross-like love. Here is where we're going to rekindle some subject matter that, that we have already discussed. Okay, so agape, if it's divine, sacrificial, cross-like, what is meant, of course, then, is that in Christ it is new, a radical kind of love that in so many ways up to the point of Christ has never been seen before because it is not natural. It is not human love. Agape is not affection. The love mothers naturally have for the babies, and the key word there is naturally. It is not liking. Again, it is not that eros, that desire, sexual or otherwise. And it is not friendship, okay? even if that were to be tagged the highest of human loves. No, agape, divine sacrificial love, my friends, is the love that created the universe and sent Christ down to suffer hell on the cross to save you and I, my dear friends. The love that kissed the traitor Judas, the love that suffered the soldier's slaps and sneers and prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ, my dear friends, on the cross looks out into the past, present, and future and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Incidentally, my friends, before we go any further, let us be clear here about the crucifixion. This is an event that actually happened in human history. And yes, we can say this in the authority that the gospel records it as an actual event. But secular historians alike, we are just not talking about religious historians, but secular historians record that this event happened. There's no debate on whether or not the crucifixion happened. I think the deeper question really is, why and what does it mean for you and I? Right? We don't want it to happen because if it didn't happen, then we don't have to deal with those two questions. But this is what this evening's all about. The why, and ultimately, what does this mean for you and I? Which, of course, brings us back to those words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this act of forgiveness, he is teaching us the highest form of love. This is God's mercy, the chief attribute of God. As John Paul II says, love's second name. Huh? You know, one can say that in the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, there is a great deal of truth in this. Now, the question to be had here is, what kind of love? And maybe even more important for us, my dear friends, how do you get it? We need God. We need His grace. We need to be loved despite our sin. This is infinitely more than what, say, secular psychology says, that we need those human positive strokes, that we are okay. My dear friends, we are not okay on our own, and down deep, we know it. 
even if we repeat for the millionth time that most attractive lie of the adversary, that sin is only a superstition and that we are intrinsically good. You know, modernized Christianity, in its desperate attempt to be accepted by the world, compromises the bad news of sin. And ultimately what this does, my dear friends, is it trivializes the good news of salvation. If we compromise the fact that we are sinners, that we have an inclination to wrongdoing, that anywhere and everywhere we are constantly feeding this pleasure appetite, then we are ultimately going to trivialize the good news of salvation, why Jesus came. Remember what the name Jesus means, Yeshua, God saves. Well, God saves us from what? God saves us from our sin. Modernized Christianity will never get what it wants, the world's acceptance, because in response to Pilate's question, what does Christ teach us? The world will always reject the truth. The world will always reject Christ. But the great paradox of our faith, and which for many of us a great tension, is that in the rejection of truth, the fullness of truth is realized in the incarnation of this great paschal love, this great passionate love, this love that suffers. This is the great paradox of truth and, I dare say, my friends, why the Catholic Church and Christianity as a whole will never win a popularity contest. I opened up with, uh, what is truth? Well, Christ, the incarnation of love, who teaches us that love itself on the cross is the highest truth. Because in the end, Christ's response to Pilate was an act. Love is busy. It's constantly responding because it understands that there is always something more to be done. Because enough is never enough until its last drop. I noted this last week. Someone poses the question, could a drop of Christ's blood save the world? Sure. Why not? If that's what God wanted to do. But ultimately, he had more to give. And if the human body has five and a half to six quarts of blood, then he had five and a half to six quarts of blood to give. This is love. It never stops. It never ceases. It's constantly seeking to fill the void in the heart of man. And this is what we need. And down deep, this is what we desire. We need God's love. Not just man's. Man's love is fickle. And as the popular theologian Peter Kreft reminds us, half our marriages are lies and betrayals with promises broken, pledged fidelity scorned, sacred vows sacrificed on the altar of the God, I gotta be me and I gotta do whatever I want to do, versus the willing of the good of the other. Nevertheless, let us hear those words from Psalm 2710, my friends. When my mother and my father forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Human love is not enough because it is always mixed, always flowing partly from need, from that aforementioned emptiness I was talking about as it relates to vanity. Yes, because we waste time, and yes, because we are too concerned with our appearances, satisfying our human appetite, we forget about other. We're so concerned about getting ours, we forget about the person next door to us. 
the person sitting next to us. We cannot build on a foundation that has holes. We cannot build on emptiness. And indeed, my friends, we are emptiness. We are in need. We are a little child crying in the night. It is no wonder that our Lord leads the charter for holiness, leads the Beatitudes with that great Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It could never be stated enough. That first Beatitude is about longing for God the same way our lungs long for air. It is that state of being, that acquired disposition, that sees all things in light of God. It is the poor person's soul. And once we have acquired that disposition, that disposition of need, and we see ourselves constantly as infants to the Father, then, my friends, we will know what it means to just not be loved, but also how to love. We first must draw from the nourishment of the fullness and absolute love before we give it away. What does the church intend to mean when she says that God is absolute love? There is never anything that we can do so great that God is going to love us more. There is nothing so tragic that is going to have God loving us any less. Why? Because God's love is absolute. God's love is unchanging. God's love is unconditional. It's not conditioned to what we do. He will love no matter what. The question is, are we going to open ourselves up to this love? Are we going to close the blinds or allow the sun to shine? Huh? We have a decision to make. We have a decision to make. And once we make that decision for love, truly, truly, my friends, we will be happy and we will discover a new freedom, a freedom that is realized in light of just not the Creator, but also the Father. So important. So important as we, as we are reflecting into this. I love this reflection that is offered up by uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He's reflecting into the cross. He said that whenever he looked at a crucifix, he saw Christ's five wounds as lips speaking to him the words, I love you. I love that. I absolutely love that. Now, up to this point, we have been focused in on this intense love that comes to us from the cross, and there can be a tendency to see this only in light of suffering. I often get the question, hey, Joe, where's the joy in all this? Well, let us remember something here. Okay, so the word that comes to us from the New Testament for grace, in its Greek, is the same root for joy. You've heard me talk about this before. If you were to go to Luke 128, and the K kartomene is that Greek angelic salutation from the angel Gabriel to Mary, right? The Greek translation is either rejoice, O highly favored one, or hail, full of grace. Why grace and why joy? Because the dikaris, the, the root, right? It's the same thing. Grace and joy belong together. Now, I want to oppose to you an, an image, an illustration, if you will, as it relates to grace to help draw this out. Grace in so many ways is like sap. What is sap? Sap, as many of you know, is what comes from trees. It contains the hormones of the tree, the nutrients of the tree, 
the water of the tree, all of the life-giving properties of the tree. Grace is like sap because when you start talking about grace, what are you talking about? All of the nutrients of God, all of the life-giving properties that God desires to give us. Well, where does this come from? How do we receive this? But in the sacramental life. The blood and the water that flow from the side of Christ signify the great sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist. In baptism, we are incorporated into the very life of God, and we continue to draw from that life in the Eucharist. And this, my friends, is what? A great joy. So here you have the relationship emerge between the crucifixion, the suffering, and joy. When you draw from the very life-giving nutrients of the crucifix and the sacramental church, this becomes a joy. And this is why not only grace and joy belong together, but suffering and joy belong together, because they are the twins of God's love. Love demands suffering, but at the same time, love is always exploding in joy. Now, what does all of this mean practically for us? I've already touched upon this idea that we are to just not draw from the nutrients of God, but actually share in this life and love. How do we do this? How do we imitate the cross? How do we imitate forgiveness? Well, we love as God loves as much as we can in our imperfect way, but we strive towards it anyways. What does that look like? We have to enter into the way in which God does not allow other people's weaknesses to dictate how he loves. He is absolute unconditional love. We enter into the dynamism of that love. We do not allow other people to dictate the fate of our day. We do not allow other people's weaknesses to determine what kind of mood we are in. No, we forgive, we reconcile, and we move on. Certainly, I see this as part of that quintessential truth as it relates to not only love, but certainly how it plays itself out in our Lent. My dear friends, as we are talking about love, and we are doing so in Lent, I want to bring this back into the context of, of attachments, and certainly what our Lord wanted us to see in the Gospels. You know, it's interesting, when I was writing my dissertation specifically on spiritual poverty, and going through oh so carefully uh, the gospel message as it relates to uh, the poor and, and money and, and so on and so forth, I was struck that pretty much on every page, Christ is using the image of wealth, money, the coin, to communicate a message. Certainly, he was meeting the people where they are at. He was using the familiar to explain the unfamiliar, huh? And what was familiar to the people was the importance of money, the, the importance of wealth, the importance of trade and commerce, what governs so much of our thought. So he took where they were at and he went deeper. One of the things about Lent is we are made to really look at this. In many societies, wealth is a sign of God's approval. And in some cases, poverty and hardship, a sign of God's disapproval. Now, Jesus does not say that being wealthy is wrong. Certainly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report Jesus' words, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus 
never says it is wrong to be rich. In fact, he hung out with some rich folk, right? Greed is the culprit. Greed turns the blessing of wealth into the burden of desire for more. Our Lord's warnings against wealth can properly be expressed as, be careful, be very careful that your possessions do not possess you because life is not about things. Possessions and greed become more important than people. Possessions and greed can become a destructive force of relationships. You know, when our Lord is reflecting there on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, do not be anxious with the worries of tomorrow, the Greek word there for anxiety and worry is preoccupied. What are we preoccupied with? Well, money, wealth, and certainly, certainly, I get it, you get it, food needs to be put on the table. But he's saying, do not put absolute trust in wealth. And he means that literally, huh? In fact, the, the Greek rendering for riches or mammon is trust in money. Yes, I'll say that again. The Greek word for mammon and riches is just not money or a lot of money. It's trust in money. So our Lord is clear. Do not trust money, what the world can provide for you. Trust me, what infinity can provide for you. Trust the love that pours forth out on the cross. This is what he wants us to see. We are not owners, but rather administrators of the goods we possess. The Catechism of the Catholic Church reminds us of this. If you were to go to paragraph 2404, the Catechism reminds us that the goods we possess are not to be considered as our exclusive possession per se, but means through which the Lord calls each and every one of us to act as a steward of his providence for our neighbor. Material goods bear a social value according to the principle of their universal destination. The Catholic Church has echoed this truth through the centuries in its teaching on social justice. Now, do not confuse this with some sort of socialist political agenda, okay? One is an end in of itself serving man's selfish appetite, and the other, the Christian version, is a means to an end. And that end, of course, is serving the church, the people of God. And in that context, you're not only loving God, but simultaneously loving neighbor. So when our Lord talks about storing up treasures in heaven, this does not mean setting out to make a sure place in heaven. It means relying on God as the source of our security. It means having a genuine and sincere relation with God who knows us, accepts us, and gives meaning to our lives. It means having God as the singular object of our heart. How many of you out there have ever moonlighted about the things money can buy and ultimately have replaced the love that God desires for you with the thing that you are moonlighting about. Now, I'm going to raise my hand. I'm a sinner. My dear friends, storing up treasures in heaven is about having a singular focus on how God wants to use you as an instrument and finding in the virtue of temperance that balance between providing for yourself and challenging yourself at the same time to be at the service of neighbor. This is what it's about. My dear friends, for the remainder of Lent, 
Witness before neighbor your love for God and the ways in which you're not only willing to make sacrifices, but in the name of love, do it willingly, joyfully, at their service, learning at the feet of the crucified Jesus. And remind yourself that no matter what happens, God's love is always there reminding you that you are better than your worst. And this is what is so consoling. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.